Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. The First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. See it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. One of the first things he did after he got out of jail was to write a MySpace post about how the entire time that he was incarcerated, he had been thinking about how he wanted to, I'm trying to remember exactly how he put it, incapacitate and dismember a human being. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and even farther away from Billy Jensen. And this might be our, I don't know, hundred something episode. And I just forgot the intro. Whoops. COVID times, it's hard to remember anything. It happens. It happens. COVID brain. Um, Billy, what is today? You know what? This is a day after my own heart. It's happy Mickey Mouse Day. It is? Yes. Oh, I looked up the days, but I must have been looking up a different day because you were it was... looking up the wrong day. Mickey Mouse Day. He uh, this is when Steamboat Willie Steamboat Willie actually came out, which is the his silver screen debut on November 18th, 1928. I like wow. Mouse. We're almost like at the go watch time. some Steamboat Willie. Yes. We're almost at the hundred or yeah, hundred year anniversary. And, and Mickey Mickey was great. I thought it was Steamboat Willie. You just called it Steamboat Billy. Which is it? <laughs> I said Steamboat Willie. No, you didn't. And I can play this back. Okay, let's see if what everybody says. The first okay, yeah. one you said yes, Steamboat Willie, yeah. and you said go watch some Steamboat Billy. I'll play it back for you, and I'll play it five times on the end of the show. He wants sure. it to be right, yes, Steamboat do that. Billy so bad. I really yeah. will. I mean, you could be Steamboat Willie. Has anybody ever called you Willie? You know what? Mickey Mouse was supposed to originally be called Mortimer. And Mouse? then, uh, yes, Mortimer Mouse. And then Jesus. <laughs> his wife was like, no, that's not good. No. Like, well, and then Disney's like, wife right, said well, that? Let's do Mickey. Yeah. Lady Disney. They're Mortimer always, Mouse. The wives are always the brains behind these operations. The wives are always the brains, yes. I do wonder what other things that she helped him with that he thought were was such a great idea. And she's like, honey, Mortimer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. are there any other good days, Billy? 
You know what? There's one day and it kind of fits in with Mickey Mouse Day. It's National Princess Day. And I will say that I do a podcast every week with two princesses (laughs) and I can't, uh, I'm just so grateful for that. Thank you. I mean, you can, is it princess in like a good connotation or a bad connotation? Because that could go either way. I'm going to not answer that, but. (laughs) That's fine. I'm a queen. He's pleading the fifth. (laughs) I can just assume what the answer is. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. dealing with a murder case where the archetype is one person killing the other, we have to remind ourselves that we're always just learning one single side of the story, the murderer's side, because the only other person who was there and knew the truth is gone. We consider news headlines, we hear opening arguments presented by the defense, and, you know, we take those things into account. But today's episode will be a reminder that we should take everything we learn about any given case with a serious grain of salt. Because if you're capable of lying, if you're capable of disparaging the memory of your victim, it begs today's question, who on earth would trust the word of a murderer? Today's case takes us back to July 2nd of 2006. Songs Promiscuous by Nelly Furtado featuring Timbaland and The World by Brad Paisley and Unfaithful by Rihanna were topping the charts. And movies like You, Me, and Dupree, Miami Vice, and John Tucker Must Die were playing in theaters. The setting for today's case is Stevens Point, Wisconsin. The city is centrally located in the state along the Wisconsin River, and it's mostly a suburban area with a variety of single and two-story homes. It's almost like a regular town, but it's big enough to be considered a city. And its city limits are surrounded by woods and farms. And today's case starts with a call between two friends on the evening of July 25th, 2006, when her first degree Abby was chatting on the phone with one of her best friends, 18-year-old Wesley Young. I actually talked to Wes on the phone before he went to the party. I had just moved away and he was going to come me where I was 19 days after. And so we were like all excited. And he said, well, I'm going to go to this party and whatever. And I will talk to you later. And you know, like, okay, love you. Love you. Okay. Some context here. Abby was born and raised in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, but she just moved to Atlanta weeks prior to this conversation that she was having with Wes. And on this call, he told her that he was about to head out to a party. So they say their goodbyes as Wes is heading out the door, and Abby carries on with her night. At the time, I was doing a lot of work online, so I was working at night, and I was kind of hopping between what I was doing and MySpace. And I was taking a break and kind of scrolling through MySpace, and one of my friends had posted a thing, something about Jeff killing Wes. There were no last names or anything. I was hoping that, you know, like, oh, it's something else. Somebody's joking. It's a different person. 
This would be a terrifying thing to see online, whether someone was joking or not. And immediately, Abby has this sinking feeling that this post is about her, Wes, her best friend that she just spoke to only hours earlier. I started calling him and he didn't answer. And I was panicking. And I don't, I don't remember much. Put yourself in Abby's position. She's seen this troubling MySpace post online and she's beyond concerned. And she's having no luck reaching Wes on the phone. So she does what any logical and scared friend would do. I remember calling the police and saying, hey, I think something really bad has happened. Everything is a blur because I was so panicked and just I knew that something had happened. So Abby is frantic. She's in Atlanta. She feels helpless. All she can do is call around, call the police, try to figure out what's happened to her best friend. And by now, even if she wants to try to look towards hope, she can't because her gut is telling her something is terribly wrong. Meanwhile, rumors about what had happened to Wes were circulating online, mostly on MySpace. Friends were posting messages on Wes's page referencing what seemed to be his death. And some of the posts read, I hope you party as hard where you are now as you did when you are here. Another one read, I'm going to miss the great times, but sometime we'll party again. Then I got a phone call because they were looking for somebody to identify his body and then feeling so powerless because I'm in Atlanta. I can't just hop in the car and go back to Wisconsin and identify a body. It just got worse because, you know, I spoke on the phone with the coroner and he kind of described the wounds because, of course, I was like, tell me what happened. And he did. I give the man a lot of credit because he could have said no, but he told me what happened and and what the wounds were and everything. And that was awful. That was worse. Knowing was worse. One of our friends, her dad ended up identifying him, but I can't imagine what that was like because his wounds were so extensive and the state of his body was so terrible. I mean, this was July. This was the middle of summer. He'd been laying in a ditch. Abby is being asked to identify her friend's body. The MySpace post, Abby's thinking feeling she was right. It was true. The friend that she had spoken to just hours earlier was gone. And the initial MySpace post that Abby had seen had mentioned a person named Jeff as Wes's killer. And that was also true. The culprit was a 22-year-old man named Jeff Kizowitzki. And I'm going to just hop in here real quick. We don't care if we're mispronouncing the name because he's a murderer. Fuck him. So usually we get dragged for mispronunciations, but I didn't bother to look this one up. So heads up on that, listeners. Thanks. And the story you're about to hear of what happened to Wes will perplex, horrify, and really anger you. The following sequence of events were pieced together with information gleaned from court documents, news reports, and Abby's firsthand experience. Here we go. The morning after the chaos of all this MySpace activity, 22-year-old Jeff walked into the Stevens Point Police Department, and he asked to speak with a police officer. It was then that he made a startling admission. 
He said he'd killed a quote-unquote friend of his. The police, understandably, were shocked, were floored by this utterance. What was he talking about? They had questions. First off, who had been killed? Where had they been killed? And why was this person killed? To answer the first question was easy. He'd killed his friend, 18-year-old Wesley Young. To answer where, he agreed to take them. But for the question as to why, the answer would be much, much murkier. And Jeff was prepared to make a full statement. He sat down and told them his version of events. And he started from the beginning, at the party. He said that he and Wesley Young were drinking heavily the previous evening before, during, and after the party that they'd both attended. And he said that through the course of the evening, he drank so much that he blacked out, so his details were fuzzy. And he told them about the party, but he didn't remember much about being at this party. And who knows whether that's true or not, but as the story is told, Jeff showed up to the party with Wes. So they went to a house, and Jeff and Wes and another girl, I don't really know who the other girl was. It might have been Jeff's girlfriend, I am unsure. And there was drinking, and by all accounts, everybody there got really drunk. I know that Jeff showed up to the party already armed. He had a huge knife with him that was, like, taken away. Now, Abby had other friends at this party, which is how the details of this evening that were left out by Jeff managed to come to light after the fact. So at this party, everyone there apparently got very drunk, as you do. And it's not clear how or why, but Wes and Jeff ended up outside in the driveway of this house where this party had taken place. Jeff told the police the next thing he remembered that he was coming to in the passenger seat of Wes's car. And Jeff claimed that his clothes had been removed. Jeff claimed that Wes was on top of him in a straddling position. And he said that Wes was essentially forcing himself on him. And that Wes's arms were under Jeff's armpits as if he was holding him. Then he said that he punched Wes. Then Jeff claimed that Wes bull rushed him. At which time Jeff stabbed him several times. And that Wes was actually the one with the knife. And they started to wrestle around. And they rolled out of the car. And their arms had gotten untangled at that point. Then the two of them fought over the knife. Now, wait a second. Where did this knife come from? Remember, Jeff had arrived at the party with a knife. But it had been taken away. The weapon that he used on Wes was a knife from the knife block in the kitchen there at the house where the gathering was. Okay, so Jeff showed up with his own knife. He got so drunk it was taken away, and then he stole one from the butcher block of the kitchen where this party was being held. Anyways, at this point, according to Jeff, he and Wes were wrestling over this knife in the driveway of this home. Jeff claimed that Wes started yelling, and at a certain point, Jeff felt something wet, which he believed to be Wes's blood. They continued to struggle before Jeff stabbed Wes in the neck. And there are some difficult things to understand about this story. This apparently happened in the driveway of a home where several people were still inside the house, not far away. Jeff claimed to wake up from being asleep when Wes was, quote unquote, on top of him, 
again, they had just wandered outside. There were people just inside this house. And there's also conflicting information about whether or not someone else had witnessed this and was there when Wes was actually murdered. So to be clear, after he's all said and done telling the police a story, what Jeff is alleging is that he stabbed Wes to death because Wes had made sexual advances. In fact, he took it a step further and said that Wes had actually sexually assaulted him. You know, basically at knife point. He took it a step further then and said that Wes had attacked him with this knife following this assault slash, you know, violent um, coming on to him. I can't imagine Wes trying to, like, attack him like that. He was super peaceful, super passive person. Also, he didn't have trouble finding companionship. So it wasn't like he was desperate or anything. And also, as far as I know, based on the people that he had been with before, Jeff wasn't (laughs) his type either. And I mean, I guess you can argue like, hey, they were really drunk. Okay, well, just because I'm really drunk doesn't mean I'm going to try to attack somebody if that isn't something that I would do normally. And not only that, I wouldn't try to attack somebody that's completely like the opposite of, quote, my type. For people who knew both Jeff and Wes, Jeff's account was absurd, especially since Jeff and Wes had no business hanging out together at all that night. They weren't even really friends. By all accounts, he's very, Jeff was very manipulative, you know, person, charming and you know, did he somehow talk him into spending time with him, you know, setting it up? I think they just met kind of through people that they knew, you know, in common because really they were not not really from the same group. Many of us don't really understand why he was spending time with Jeff. I had met him once, like in passing. I did not know him, but a lot of people that were friends with Wes did know Jeff. Abby believes that Jeff decided that he wanted to kill someone, but also decided that that someone would be Wes. I do think that he planned it ahead of time. So whether he encountered Wes and was like, yeah, this guy right here, because he's gay, I don't think that... He was a big fan of gay people. So I don't know if he just saw him was like, yep, he's gay, he'll do. I'm going to befriend him and then get him. Or if he was like, yep, we'll just hang out and see how it goes. And then maybe something happened. He was like, nope, this is the perfect opportunity. <laughs> but I, I do think that he planned it. I do think that he picked Wes. Otherwise, why would he go to a party with a giant knife? Like, really, a huge, giant knife that was taken away from him, which which the person who took it away from him actually turned that knife over to the police as well. Okay, so you might be wondering why Abby is so sure that Jeff planned this, that he planned to kill someone. And here's your answer. I went on to Jeff's MySpace, and I was shocked, shocked, because, okay, so he had been incarcerated, and then he had been let out on parole or probation or whatever, like three days before he killed Wes. 
But one of the first things he did after he got out of jail was to write a MySpace post about how the entire time that he was incarcerated, he had been thinking about how he wanted to, I'm trying to remember exactly how he put it, incapacitate and dismember a human being. So Jeff had been in jail and he'd gotten out only three days before that party. And the charges that landed him behind bars the first time were unpaid fines related to previous misdemeanor convictions. So Jeff put this stuff about wanting to kill somebody up on MySpace. He follows through with it. He brings a knife to a party. And he's now trying to claim that he killed Wes in self-defense. I was so shocked because everybody's like, well, you know, it was an accident. And I saw that and I went, oh, no, it wasn't. It was not an accident. You don't show up to a thing with a knife and have posted something like that, and you're with somebody that you wouldn't otherwise be hanging out with, and then they end up dead. What the heck? And so I had screenshotted it and then forwarded it to the district attorney, like, hey, you need to know that this is a thing. And then shortly after that, Jeff's girlfriend deleted it. And here's the thing about Jeff. He apparently had one of those personalities that really worried Abby. She was fearful that people might actually believe Jeff's lies. I kind of feel like we have, you know, enough of the element in our town that there would be the people that are like, oh, gay, you deserve to die. Or, you know, like, oh, scary, you were you were gay and you were forcing yourself on him. Oh, yep, it's okay that he stabbed you. It was enough that people first hearing what he was saying happened and then thinking, oh my gosh, they might actually believe that this thing happened and just let him go. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. 
Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. So in this story, Wes and Jeff were in that car. So really, there's no way to know what happened, right? Well, wrong. Because Jeff's behavior following the brutal murder of his friend spoke volumes about the type of person that he is. So here's what happened. After Jeff murdered Wes, he drove Wes's car a short distance to the local landfill. And it was there that he abandoned Wes's car and he actually dumped the 18-year-old's body there. Then Jeff went to a friend's house and tried to clean himself up. The police spoke to this friend who lived at the home where Jeff washed up. And this friend said that when Jeff came by, he was covered in blood from head to toe. So now that Jeff has dumped his friend, who he just murdered, and dumped the car, he starts walking. And it's not clear where he was attempting to go. But the assumption is that he was heading home. Wherever he was going, to get there, he had to cut through the yard of a man named Roger Yenter to get there. So as Jeff was walking through this guy's yard, Roger, the homeowner, saw him and stopped him. He saw Jeff's bloodied state, and he probed him about why he was covered in blood. So Jeff made up an incoherent, bullshitty story. Roger then insisted on driving Jeff home, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. So this good Samaritan Roger drives Jeff to his parents' house. And once they get there, the sheriff's department was called. And it's not clear if the parents called the sheriff's department or if Roger did. But here is where things get weirder. When the deputies get there, they ask Jeff why he has these defensive injuries, why he has a cut on his head, why he's covered in blood. And Jeff, as an excuse, points the finger at his father and says, the father is the reason why he's bloodied and injured, citing a domestic violence incident between the two of them. The officer spoke with Jeff's father, who denied fighting with his son to any degree, but Jeff insisted it was true and said he didn't want to be left at the home, and instead he wanted to be taken to his cousin's house who lived nearby, which he ended up going to the cousin's house. So this is the kind of dude we're dealing with. He murdered his friend, and then he threw his dad under the bus as soon as he needed an excuse and in a way to get away with this murder of his friend he had just committed. Right. And on this night, these deputies had no idea that a murder had been committed. So as far as they knew, they were really just in the middle of a domestic dispute between father and son. And they probably get calls like this all the time. And once police knew about the murder, they speak with Jeff's cousin. And the cousin's story was this. Once Jeff arrived to the cousin's house, he asked to be taken to the landfill, the one where Jeff had dumped Wes's lifeless body only hours earlier. And once they arrived, he gets out of the car, grabs a plastic bag, and put it in his pocket. And from there, he dumped a duffel bag that he had with him into the landfill. 
And this bag was later found by police, and inside of it was his bloody clothing from the night of the murder. And after he dumped the bag, he started talking to his cousin. And he turned and said, quote, I killed someone. Jeff proceeded to tell his cousin his own version of events. And then at a certain point, Jeff asked his cousin to look at him in the face. And Jeff said, look at me. Do I look cold to you like a killer? I should have more remorse or something. But somehow it ain't there. After Jeff turned himself in, the police recovered Wes's body. And they took the body in for an autopsy. And the results were disturbing. And I'm going to quote the coroner here. Quote, The victim's wounds were very long and very deep. His voice box, carotid artery, and his jugular vein were cut. Even with a very sharp knife, it would take significant force to sever those areas and to penetrate into the throat that deeply, end quote. He further described the wounds as a classic cutthroat. The wound started at the left side of Wes's face and ended under the right ear. Wes also had a deep wound under his left arm that penetrated his lung. Wes had defensive wounds on his hands and on his palms. And he was also stabbed several other times, and one wound penetrated his lung. Everything that we just listed was awful. Truly gruesome injuries. However, the most glaring thing uncovered in the autopsy was not the horrifying level of aggression reflected in Wes's wounds, but that the bulk of them had landed on his back which meant that Jeff's story of Wes attacking him first with the knife, that couldn't be true. After Wes's body was recovered, the detectives searched the surrounding area for more evidence. They found a 13-inch kitchen knife, a few articles of clothing, and some paper that were wrapped in a towel in a wooded area near where the abandoned car was located. You know when you meet somebody and they just seem kind of like, oh, they're really charming and they're really nice, but you can tell that they're kind of like they're wearing a mask. I've heard from a lot of people like, hey, he's like a very, I don't think two-faced is really the right term for it, but just like he's two people, you know, like he's this persona that he projects and tries to get, you know, everybody to be like, oh, that's Jeff, but really he's something else underneath. Jeff was arrested and booked on charges of first-degree intentional homicide and hiding a corpse. The charges he was facing carried a possible life plus 10-year sentence. He pleaded not guilty, which meant there would be a trial. And while the wheels of justice were slowly turning, time was standing still for those coping with the loss of Wes. It had a tremendous impact on my life, and I was really messed up for a super long time. It took a lot of work to come back from... I will never be over it. You don't ever get over something like that, but you learn to function with the grief and function with the anger. The day that it happened, the anniversary of of his death, I used to go sit at his grave and, and drink myself into a silly stupor, and I'm not even like a big drinker. At the time that this unfolded, there were certain individuals who did buy Jeff's story. Jeff's girlfriend believed him. His friends believed him. 
On the internet, several posts were exchanged that expressed shock about how someone as quote-unquote nice as Jeff could be involved in something like this. And friends came to Jeff's defense and said that he had never expressed having any issues with gay people, which left them at a total loss. And all the while, Jeff really stuck to his story, insisting that he was the victim. He takes zero responsibility for his actions. He came up with this idea, I want to kill somebody. He went through with the idea, I killed somebody. Then he hid the body, and then I don't know if it wasn't the exhilarating thrill he thought it was going to be, and he decided he needed more the attention of, well, what happens if I turn myself in and take them to the body and then tell them it was his fault and whatever, but still zero accountability. Like, it's not my fault he attacked me. It's not my fault my dad beat me up. I'm bloody my dad beat me up. What? (laughs) Okay, sure. That just completely fits with his super manipulative personality. So in the trial, Jeff and his defense leaned on a hybrid, and it was between self-defense and a gay panic defense. And if that's not a term you're familiar with, we're going to lay it out for you. And I'm going to preface this by saying it's total bullshit, but this is how defense lawyers try to play this. Well, and Billy, I I think another interesting thing, too, is like it wasn't an explicit gay panic defense. It was like – it was sort of like tone – because of where they lived. You know what I mean? Like where mm-hmm. they weren't, they didn't have to say it. It was like, he was, they, Wes came on to him. You know what I mean? Like, cause it wasn't it was inferred. Exactly. So it was really inferred. Jack, you nailed it. Yes. Sorry to cut you off. Bill. Gotcha. Okay. That's all right. So according to the LGBT bar, the panic defense strategy is a legal strategy that asks a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity slash expression is to blame for a defendant's violent reaction, including murder. Now, it's not a freestanding defense to criminal liability, but rather a legal tactic used to bolster other defenses. When a perpetrator uses a panic defense, they are claiming that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity not only explains, but more or less excuses a loss of self-control and the subsequent assault. And then again, I'm going to say, It's total bullshit, but this is what defense lawyers attempt to do in these situations. During the trial, the prosecution used evidence from Wes's autopsy to contradict Jeff's version of events. Jeff insisted he punched Wes, that he pulled Wes's hair to get him off of him while he claimed Wes straddled him in the front seat. But the prosecution pointed out that Wes actually didn't have any marks on his face. No significant amount of hair was pulled from his head either. One detective testified that Jeff said he was standing in front of Wes when he stabbed him in the throat, that he waved the knife in sort of an S-shaped pattern as he gashed him. But when the coroner took the stand, as you mentioned, he said it's impossible for things to have unfolded in this way, explaining that there were wounds to Wes's back. And the shape of the patterns completely contradicted Jeff's story. At the trial, Jeff's defense attorney backpedaled in his client's defense. And he said that Jeff never should have told the investigators that he was sexually assaulted by Wes. So it seems as though that whole story was retracted in court. But they did stick to other aspects of the story that Jeff crafted, that Wes's murder was in self-defense, calling it a quote-unquote tragic mistake. But again, the autopsy proved that Wes's throat was slit 
and that he was stabbed from behind, which directly defies a self-defense argument. The trial didn't seem to be going in Jeff's favor, and he started to pick up on this. So in a plot twist, before the conclusion of the trial, Jeff made a deal with the prosecution and he took a plea. So he pled guilty to first-degree intentional homicide. At the plea hearing, he said, quote, to the family of Wes Young and to my family, I say to them how sorry I am that things got out of hand that night. I never intended to kill Wes Young, and I'm sorry for all the grief I have caused. Okay, now, denying his intention to kill Wes directly contradicts first-degree murder, but okay. So Jeff was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of extended supervision or parole in 20 years. And part of Jeff's deal included the fact that the charge of hiding a corpse that he was facing be dismissed. And after the sentence was handed down, Wes's stepfather, Ray Kayer, addressed the court, saying how Jeff, quote-unquote, let him bleed out like a deer. He also said that the family's grief had been compounded by the fact that Wes's mother, Becky, was dying of kidney failure, and Wes would have been the most likely match. And now, to be honest, the reason Abby decided to do this podcast in the first place, because she admittedly had never listened to an episode of The First Degree. Maybe she will now because we bonded in our almost two-hour conversation. But anyways, it was important to her that our listeners know that this situation is not about her. All of this is for Wes. And the reason she decided to speak out about one of the most traumatic experiences of her life, remember she was there in these moments this was unfolding between MySpace and talking to the cops and then talking to the coroner about his injuries. The reason she's putting herself through this again is because she believes Jeff could kill again and that he shouldn't be given the opportunity to hurt anyone else. He will be eligible for parole in 2026, and I know that that seems a long way away, but it's not, in the grand scheme of things, it's going to come pretty quickly. If we wait till the last minute to do something about it, then it's likely it's likely that he'll be released because, by all accounts, he's been a model prisoner while he's been incarcerated, which is not shocking given his personality. He maintains innocence and, and just zero accountability. He will not take responsibility for what he did. He's still the victim. I am truly terrified that he'll be released and he'll hurt somebody else. I can't imagine what I would do if he got out and I encountered him on the street. For those who love Wes, the lack of coverage of this case has been frustrating. It's not visible. It's not something that you can, you know, bring up here and nobody recognizes it. Nobody's heard of it, which just blows my mind. We're not a huge town. People who have lived here for the last even two decades should remember that one time that some crazy guy decided to practically decapitate a gay kid. But no. Nope, nobody remembers it. And more than anything, Abby doesn't want her friend to be forgotten. He was a really, like, peaceful person, very non-confrontational. He was going to school to become a counselor because he had spent some time in foster care, and his goal was to become a counselor and help kids like he had been 
and just make it so that things were a little bit easier for them, you know, really just make the world a better, more hopeful place. This happened 14 years ago when, although it was not like terribly taboo to be gay, it was not really accepted the way it is now. Like that is, that is one thing that just, it kills me. Like the, the progress that's been made for any different quote, different, not straight person. The fact that Wes is not alive to see this progress, it just kills me because he would be floored at the, you know, progress that's been made in the last 14 years. I have no idea how the world would be different and the amazing things he would have done if he had been here and just all of that was wiped out. Well, a huge thank you to Abby for being our first degree guest and being so vulnerable telling us her story. If you're out there and you have a story to tell, please email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time. We're also just talking about the random shit that we talk about during killing time and uh, stick around because we're going to kill some more time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that that close. God damn it. (laughs) Happy Mickey Mickey Mortimer Mouse Day. Happy Mortimer Day. Bye. Big thanks to Jared Monaco for our sound design and for creating original music for The First Degree, our producing team caitlin cleveland love you girl taylor rogers alan santiago for podcast one sources for today's episode include court documents twincities.com stevens point journal the daily tribune the post crescent the lacrosse tribune and as always our first degree guest is always our largest source Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details.
All right. Well, welcome to yet another episode of the Killing Time. Yeah, Billy, the Killing Time is back. Fuck. <laughs> That's right. You know, it just came it so to you, and then you come running. But do I say it every week? I feel like it's like maybe once every four weeks. You don't say it every week. I because I keep tabs. I think the reason why I said it is I feel very connected um, to me right now. No, I feel very <laughs> classy looking at Billy right now because he's sitting in like a corner office looking thing and a turtleneck looking very refined. I'm yeah, where's your monocle, Billy? Right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like your Chesterfield um, sofa in- and you're like, you know, wall of books behind you. Yes. Apparently they put us all on the sixth floor, which is the nicest floor, and they gave us all giant rooms, but there's no room service. Yeah, you want to explain your situation? I'm in it. I'm in a hotel. I'm working on my book. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. And it is But who are you um, with? Who's us all? It's a ghost town. I mean us meaning like the like the I think they put every guest on the sixth floor because the elevator is always open whenever I go to it. So mm. every, I think they put every guest on the sixth floor. There's not many people here. Um, staying at the West, but it's t- super cheap. But there, there are literally no accoutrements or anything. They didn't even, you know. But is that like free a Wi-Fi? COVID? That's it. Is that a? It's, COVID a, it's a whole thing? COVID thing. Yeah, exactly. So, well, but, uh, Billy, you look nice. Like you thank look, you. you look nice. You look like you should be like in a dark room. I'm really cold right now. Still. I was outside for about four hours, and it's really cold here. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Billy. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. So this episode of uh, Killing Time minus the dot um, was inspired by something that my mom sent to me, and it was oh, this yes, meme. May and it says, May "You know what, right, May? May? She's always in the background trying to give me ideas, control." My creative businesses <laughs> control Jared's creative businesses. She always, after everything that Jared does now, she calls to check up and give her feedback of what he could have done better. You know what? Wow. She's the, she's the Chris Kardashian of this group. He's the Chris Kardashian. Yeah. Oh. Like, you remember when she said, hey, Jack, how about you make like rubber bracelets? I know. That are like thick. You remember when she said that? That was great. I know. My mom, I can really attribute all of my success in life to my mom because it was her idea to make the Jack Vanek bracelet. So we should listen to what she says. So what she was saying is through a meme that she sent. It says, reach your, well, I already fucked it up. Let's not like we read on this podcast or anything. She said, researchers concluded that there are four types of drunks. The first type of drunk is the Hemingway, whose personality stays the same. The second type of drunk is the Mary Poppins, who becomes even sweeter and more outgoing. The third type of drunk is the nutty professor, who becomes an uninhibited attention seeker. And the fourth is Mr. Hyde, who turns hostile. Now, we need to figure out which types of drunks that we are. Mine's easy. The the last one? (laughs) Uh, No. That's the last one. Yeah, right. I'm the happiest drunk ever, unless I'm not fed, which the only time I've ever get thrown Jared any sass or you any sass is when like we had a barbecue at your house and I was wasted and the gas wasn't working on the stove and I hadn't eaten in like 20 hours. And I was I was so drunk. No, and you also were doing like a keto diet where you like couldn't eat a carb <laughs> and we were drinking copious amounts of alcohol. 
<laughs> but no, I think I'm just, I'm a happy drunk. I don't really get mean. I would anything. say that you're the Mary Poppins, which is the happy one. Yeah. And on occasion, the Mr. Hyde. Yes. The hostile one. When I'm hungry. <laughs> like, is the only time. That's fair. That's me sober, okay, too, though. I'm hostile when I'm hungry when I'm I mean, sober also. I think the maddest that I've gotten at Jared recently was last week when, you know, when you get so hungry, you get past the point of knowing what you want to eat and then yes. you're just mad and then nothing yeah. can make you feel better. Yes. I got to that point and Jared, have I ever been madder at you than that moment? Uh, God. Well, there was like, well, that whole incident was crazy. You were just so mad. I wanted sushi, but then like sushi so expensive and to get sushi delivered, you're paying $90 to eat delivery sushi. It was just a whole thing. But anyways, Billy, what kind of drunk are you? Um, Billy's in Mr. Hyde. So I'm typically, no, <laughs> since I'm typically drunk most of the time, I, I'm Hemingway um, mm. with a, with probably a, What's Hemingway again? a, a little bit Hemingway of Mr. Hyde. Is who's and we'll, I'm going to post this in the Facebook group because I want to hear everybody's whatever kind of drunk everybody is. The Hemingway is whose personality stays the same. See, I, think I think I'm, I'm a Hemingway like that too, because I drink a lot also, and I'm pretty like even keel. That's that's mm-hmm. true. I can like, like, I mean, Alexis will have 15 drinks, and I can barely and tell that she's totally drunk. fucking yeah. normal, totally normal. That's the thing, Billy. You're, <laughs> I remember I'm though, so, Billy. I'm sorry to break this to you. You are not a Hemingway. At all. Mm-hmm. No, you can tell that Billy is drunk after a second drink. One drink. <laughs> you get googly eyes. You're like, you get googly not, eyes and then you start is... slurring. And I know that even our listeners know this because they can tell which episodes you've drank a little That's bit too true. much. <laughs> that, no, that is true. But, um, uh, you know, let's keep in mind that Kem- that Hemingway blew his brains out. So it's on brand for me. Well, mm-hmm. must have just been feeling the same he feels when he's sober. So, yeah. He's, so yeah. we haven't. Have we? I mean, have we decided? He's a hot, Mr. Hyde. He's a Mr. Right. Hyde. Okay. If you're okay. drunk, just if you're drinking, no. If you're drunk, your personality changes. Mm. Drunk. <laughs> That's not mean. I mean, I am when I'm drunk and hungry. It's not like an insult. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyways, yeah, that is everybody. Jack's Jack's a Hemingway. The only time I've seen Jack do anything drunk in the last two years that wasn't like her was on Halloween last year when you were trying to get an Uber back to Santa Monica or back to Marina Del Rey from Molly's house. <laughs> oh, well, this this is the time. Okay, when I snap and I turn into a Mr. Hyde when I'm drunk is when I can't get home. It happens you go every single year. You want to go wash your face. Like you, you need your routine. It happens every single year at every festival I go to because it's so hard to get home from a festival. It's also one of the only times that Jared and I have fought when we we're trying to get home from a like a whole drinking thing. If I can't get home and I'm stuck somewhere, that's when I get I turn into the biggest bitch in the world. Yeah, you don't like that. I know. I want. I want to get in my robe. I want to be we, warm. I want to. We all have face. our shit, man. We all have our shit. No, we all have our shit. I like that though. May is go- May strikes again in a good way. Yeah. So on theme of this, I thought that we'd do like a little alcohol themed killing time and just Love like that. get to know us through our drinking habits. Totally. So 
The first question is, what is the first alcoholic drink that you ever had? And give me like a little story behind it. Um, my mom at my house I grew up in had this closet. She threw huge parties. We had like pallets of like gin and vodka. And I just remember you have no disgust for that alcohol yet because you haven't mm-hmm. been sick from it or hung over. And I remember like chugging like shitty gin. Gin? I don't know how shitty it was. I just remember chugging gin like because I snuck a bottle and we I had friends sneak in and we were like drinking gin like it was nothing because you weren't repulsed by it yet, by the taste of alcohol yet because you had it hadn't hurt, hurt you. <laughs> I didn't hurt your soul. A gin is such a weird first drink. It's whatever was around, man. Long Island. Billy, what was yours? I have memories of peach schnapps. Oh. Probably because that was just what was in the liquor cabinet. You know, like everything else was done, but then like the peach schnapps was there. That's probably a first Uh, good or a good first drink. Yeah. And now I can't eat not only peach, not I can't I can't eat anything peach. Now. I love peach. Because of that? Yeah. What about a peach ring? No. I was just going to say, those uh, are my favorite you know candies. They're so good. Or peachy rings. Yeah. I'd rather have a have a watermelon slice candy than a peach Water. ring. Water. Peach ring is probably one of the only actual candies I like that isn't a me chocolate. Chocolate mm. and me, man. Mm. You know, Alexis and I, we're like attached at the We at had the a hip, hysterical conversation the other day. She's like, what are you getting so-and-so for Christmas? And I was like, this. She's like, I'm on that website right now. And then we just started going back and forth with ideas, and we already had that idea. It was genius. I, I was asking for ideas for Christmas for Jared, and Alexis told me the two main ideas that I, I was already like, was I got something do. for Billy that was blank. And she was like, holy shit, really? I was thinking about that. We're always on the same wavelength, Lex. Always. Literally. Um, my first drink that I had was in Mexico when I was like 13 years old and I was on vacation with my parents and we were at the pool and we ordered something called a brown monkey, brown monkey, <laughs> right? That's what it was. And it's basically a chocolate smooth, chocolate ask, banana smoothie. Jared and ask him. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> I, told him, I told him this story recently and I think I called it a brass monkey, which is that not, monkey, monkey. Yeah. Not the thing, but that Wait, was, so what was in the brown monkey? I think it was just a chocolate and banana smoothie with some, maybe a vodka or wow. something like some that. Shit. That's, maybe yeah. it was, rum makes probably more sense. Um, okay, so speaking of that, what what is the drink that makes you want to throw up at the thought of? Like, what is the drink that ruined you when you were younger? I have two, Jagerbomb and oh, Captain Morgan and SoCo Lime. Oh my God, SoCo disgusting. SoCo would give me a hangover like an hour after I drank it. Do you guys remember the Jagerbomb phase with Red Bull and Jagermeister? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jagerbombs are sick. Disgusting. But SoCo Lime is probably the worst. And Captain Morgan is pretty bad, too. SoCo Lime's worse yeah. than Captain Morgan, though. SoCo is pretty bad. What about you, Billy? I mean, the, it's the peach knob stuff, like whatever's made with <laughs> See, that. That sounds delicious. I'm like salivating thinking about that. But I can't think if like you went too far with a peach schnapps. It's a very that peach flavor is very potent. overwhelming. It's it, very yes. potent. It almost and is like so, a, so, so sort of you know obviously it's syrupy because it's a liqueur too. So it's ew, it's it's not syrupy. good. Yeah, it's perfumey. Um, mine is a vanilla vodka with vanilla coke. Ew! Wow. 
it was I just I remember the night I remember the next morning it was sickening oh god that's well that's bad like sometimes when you're sick over something the flavor is like seared into your brain as like a Pavlovian negative response mm-hmm. and it's just well, the, it I can't even have for decades to come just thinking about it the thought of vanilla coke even on its own is just ruined forever not that I would ever like vanilla coke but that it's just it's pretty bad um, I hate that. <laughs> Billy, here's a here's a question I don't know that Billy might be familiar with. Have either of you ever done a keg stand at, backstage at a main show before? <laughs> I believe I have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jared gave me this question because I mean, the the I know we've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but Billy, the thought of Billy and his gangly body doing a keg stand is the best you visual like I've ever had in my people life. to hold him up, his long body. Yeah, it was, it was, yes, it was like Gulliver's Travels. And I remember, uh, <laughs> you know, it was funny because I was on the plane coming out here and I was just going, I was like cleaning up my phone and I, and I, I got to that night. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Was about, it was about a year ago, you know, it was, it was, it was right after Thanksgiving and I got to that night and I was looking at the pictures and I remember seeing, I didn't have any pictures of that, but I remember seeing the pictures of before and a few pictures afterwards. And I was just like, yep, that was, I did that. That was a thing. You know what? I think if I look far enough back into our DMs, I could find it because I'm almost (laughs) positive that I posted it on Instagram. You're youthful, Billy. It was. You know what? You got to stay young. You got to stay young. Honestly, I think that everybody was very stoked for you doing that. And then Jared and I were talking about that. We're like, God, being backstage at a concert or like going to a concert. Jack, I just remember even going backstage at your Lady Gang hang, Lady Gang show here in LA with like Shake Shack and like alcohol. It was so fun. We were downtown. We went to the went to the market. What is that place called downtown? Oh, Billy was there too. I was there. The downtown. No, no, it was the Lady Gang downtown LA show, and we went with your parents first to eat at that place. Yeah. Um, the that was, was a, wearing, that was a I was wearing show. my Alexis Linkletter must be stopped shirt. Yeah, you oh, I shirt. can't remember. It was are, like Jared was there. Confused. We had oysters first, yeah. and we went to that Chinese food place. Anyways, I don't, I don't know. Guess and it didn't was, fucking yes. stand up. To <laughs> it's it, a guess it didn't stand up for you. <laughs> yeah. I remember Everything I is. was backstage once. Uh, you know, Alexis, <laughs> you're pretty cool. I just like miss doing literally anything. Me too. I just miss you guys. Just, I miss the like face to face hangs. I know. We need a fit. You know what? We need to record in person sometime soon. Go get yeah. tested, do the damn thing. And like, we're all in the same pod. We might as well. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting tested. When I come back, I'm getting tested. So, yeah, maybe we do it next week. Yeah. I just need like some we can sort do it next of, week. I need yeah, we could probably bed. do like Monday or Tuesday. I'll be tested Monday or, by then. Yeah. Well, we have to right. record results. Monday or sooner. So, anyways, we'll, we won't bore our listeners with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, we'll we'll move this to the group chat. But I think that we've killed some time. Yes, uh, time of death fifteen twenty four. Boop boop beep. Boop beep beep beep. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. 
Ashley, for the love of home.